Hi, this is Dr. Christopher Perrin with another episode of The Christopher Perrin Show. This is a podcast, and this episode is a part of the truenorth.fm podcast network, and you can find us at truenorth.fm. Today, I'd like to talk about the virtue of prudence. I will be doing this in two episodes in two parts. In this first part, I'd like to talk about true prudence, and in the second episode, false prudence. Prudence is one of the cardinal virtues, and you probably have heard of the four cardinal virtues. They were called cardinal because they were hinge virtues on which one's life really revolved. Cardo cardinalis in Latin means hinge. If you had these four virtues uh, matured within you, you would become a fully developed human being, according to the ancients. They were uh, prudence first, then justice, temperance, and fortitude, and they were talked about an awful lot. We find it. Uh, we find conversations about this in, say, Plato and Aristotle. Augustine comments on them. In fact, the ancient Christian tradition encounters the traditions of these virtues and largely affirms them, but then transforms them with the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. In fact, Augustine thought that the four cardinal virtues really couldn't come into their own without love. But prudence was the first of the four cardinal virtues, and according to Aquinas, the governing virtue that really gave direction to the following three, that is justice, temperance, and fortitude or courage. What is prudence? You know, this is a word that we don't use too often. We don't use uh, the language of virtue very often anymore. In fact, what is virtue and what are the virtues? Uh, the three basic categories of virtues were the moral virtues, the civic virtues, the intellectual virtues. Uh, there are not too many of us now that have been really well-schooled in this, but for almost 2,000 years, this was extremely well-known. It was just a part of the culture of the West. Uh, anyone who had read the Greeks and the and the Romans and had read uh, anything in the, the literature of Christendom, say, would have known very much what these virtues were, would have uh, seen them carved into pillars and stone and monuments and churches and basilicas. They were extremely common. But we're recovering virtue. The virtue itself comes from the Latin word virtus, and it's derived in turn from the Latin word vir, which simply meant man. And so to have virtus was to essentially become a fully developed man or human being. Uh, to, it, the word virtuoso comes from virtus. We still retain in the idea of virtuoso a person who's been extremely well developed in a particular skill. So I say a virtuoso violinist is somebody who's about the best a human can be at playing the violin. But virtue therefore generally meant full development in human excellence and in moral excellence. Well, if there were four cardinal virtues, and they were considered to be so important that if you had these four virtues, they would give birth to other virtues. So in other words, aim at prudence, and a lot of other great things are going to happen to you. You might call it like a keystone virtue that will support and lead to other virtues, or a source virtue that would lead to other virtues. So these were important virtues. There were four of them. And prudence is often considered to be the governing virtue of the other three. But what is prudence? So if we don't even know what the word virtue really means today, we're still trying to recover that. Well, that would be true of prudence as well. When you think of being prudent, I wonder what comes to your mind. Well, 
in the original sense of this word, it was deep and had a, a thoughtful range of meaning. It's related to the word providence. In fact, prudencia in Latin is derived from providencia, providence. This ability to kind of see beforehand what's going to happen, it's a kind of foresight. So to have prudence is the ability to see what was likely going to happen in various circumstances, to be able to know the reality of those circumstances, the reality of the world and human nature and human action, and then to know what to do. So Pieper, in his book, by the way, a great book summarizing Aquinas and the tradition of the cardinal virtues, is a great read. This is the four cardinal virtues. I've really enjoyed Joseph Pieper. He has a book on the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love as well. I also appreciate Aquinas himself and, of course, uh, say Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics on uh, what it means to be virtuous in the Greek tradition. Augustine comments on this. I also like A.G. Sertolange's book, The Intellectual Life, uh, Its Spirit, Conditions, and Methods. These are all great resources if you're interested in learning more about, well, the virtue tradition. But back to prudentia, it comes from providence. It's the ability to see what's likely to happen. It's perfected ability to make right decisions. That's how Pieper, summarizing Aquinas, defines prudentia or prudence. He also calls it this, reason perfected in the cognition of truth. Prudentia is that virtue that enables one to understand and know reality, to know what is really the state of affairs through uh, a silent and regular contemplation of the world such that you would know what is real and then therefore know what to do to be able to act out of what is real and in what is real. So knowing that comes before and directs doing. And this is why prudence would help lead a person to know how to become and act just, temperate, and bravely. All right, just think of this word reality for a moment. What is really real? Well, that's being challenged today. There are, there are some who think that, generally I think, in, or at least in increasing ways, think that the world as we know it is like so much raw material that we get to work with and transform into what we wish it to be. But this is not what I think reality is, and this is not how it has been conceived for centuries. Reality has been conceived as something that we're born into, that is given to us, and that we can't change, but should rather change ourselves to conform to it in harmony. Plato said this, and it was confirmed for centuries, there is a cosmos, an ordered reality that is beautiful. And the beauty that we find in the cosmos, the reality of it should be something that informs us. It comes with given forms. And we would be in harmony and be flourishing and blessed if we would conform to those forms. But to know those forms, we must open our eyes, quiet ourselves, be silent, and look and listen to perceive. 
So this tradition believes that we have minds that are able to perceive what is real and therefore what is true. And that in turn would lead us to know what to do that is good. So let's just look at the Latin for a minute. The, the Latin word res, R-E-S, simply means something that you can observe and know. It is a race. It is something. Uh, it's in our word republic. It's from res publica, which means those things that are of public concern, the republic. So when we're involved in government affairs and civic affairs, we want to know what are those affairs? What is the real state of affairs and what should we do about them? So from race, though, we get another family of words. We get realis and realitas, which means all of those things together comp comprise a reality. Note the R-E, it's just, it's everywhere in these words I'm going to be sharing with you. So we have res, we have realis, we have realitas. And then we have this verb, rero, which means, rero means I, I think, I perceive, I calculate, I reckon. It's that ability to actually perceive a race and know that race and know what is true. And from race, one of the forms of race is ratus, ratus sum. And from ratus, we get ratio and rationis, reason. We are able to use our reason, a ratio, in order to perceive a race so that we might know realitas. And therefore, we might be able to realize the good in the world that we perceive and come to know. But we can't act well and we can't actually achieve the good if we don't know the real. This is at the heart of prudentia, which as I said, is a form of providentia, an ability not only to see what the real thing is before us, but to see what is likely to happen in the future. Okay, uh, there's another Latin word, veritas, and veritas is the word, one of the words for truth. Uh, veros means true. When we verify that something is actually a race, the state of affairs, we can say that it is veritas, it is a truth. So, the etymology I think is helpful. And in, a Greek, in Greek, we have another word for truth that I think is relevant. It's aletheia. And aletheia is an interesting word because it's compound. Ah means uh, uh, contrary to or without. Lathia means something that is veiled or hidden. Aletheia means something that has been unveiled or revealed. So to the Greek mind, when they would hear the word for truth, aletheia, they would hear something that is no longer hidden, something that has been made manifest, something that has been revealed, aletheia. No longer aletheia, it's aletheia. So how do we come to know what's true? How, do we, how can what is true be revealed to us? There are some who believe that if truth exists, we couldn't know it. And there are some who believe the truth doesn't exist, that there is no universal or absolute truths. But this is contrary to human experience and the testimony of humanity from the beginning of the written record. There is a reality, and we would do well to conform to it. 
And if we were to know how to be and act in the world, we should take time to know what is real. In fact, I think there's a kind of cosmophobia that's afflicting many that is a, a skepticism and maybe a fear of the cosmos as it is actually given to us, because the cosmos does come to us very orderly. It's somewhat predictable, like the solar system, like the, the earth revolving in 365 days in a fraction every year, and it's, it's spinning on its axis 24 hours in a given day. These things are regular, and you could say harmonious, predictable patterns, and there are also patterns in our own biology and life. For example, we come with a symmetry. Have you noticed? We have two eyes, we have two hands, two arms, two ears, two legs, two lungs and kidneys. And of course, there are some surprises like we, the fact that we only have one heart. But there's beautiful symmetry and harmony with some surprises built in. This is the nature of truth as, we, as it's given to us. But to be afraid of these matters is a kind of cosmophobia, and not to conform ourselves to the harmony that's already pre-existing is to create disorder and disharmony in our own lives. And not to perceive this harmony is to be, in this tradition anyway, imprudent. And not able to know what is real is not to know how to act properly. Think about this. Let's just say, speaking of the solar system and living on this globe, this orb that we call the Earth, there's some things that are given to us, like the fact that it, well, it is circular. And if you travel in one direction long enough, you'll come back to the same place. And if you could dig straight through, you'll come out on the other end. These things are just given to us. You can't change that fact. Um, it's, it's, and there's a kind of harmony to it that I think is also delightful. But you couldn't choose to reject the four points of the compass. Maybe some would feel that it's a kind of imposition upon them that's, uh, well, unjustified and, and improper to ask that I would have to conform to the north, south, west, east points of the compass or all, much even more, all 360 degrees on the compass. That's constraining. But of course, the fact of the matter is you're facing in one direction right now, no matter what you would choose, because it's been given to you. You can't proclaim yourself an odd directionist or odd directional. Uh, and the same thing is true of our biology. Uh, we've been given a DNA. We've been given chromosomes. We've, we, there are some things about us. I have a nose in the middle of my face. And that is uh, as strange as that may be. <laughs> Noses are kind of strange. I have one. And it's not to me to change. So maybe we do suffer from some cosmophobia, but cosmophilia is to love the cosmos and to want to know it. And so with as a cosmophile, we should take time to contemplate and study and know reality. Let me just give you a couple of examples of how um, knowing what is true leads to good ethical action. It may be in a school setting. Think about the elementary school students who are playing kickball and a, a captain has been chosen for each side. And then those, you know, 11 or 12 year old captains have to choose who will be on their teams one by one. Now, 
even a 12-year-old who knows something about reality will be faced with some decisions. Should that new scrawny kid who's just come to the school be chosen on his team? Or should he be left to be the last person chosen? And what will the rest of his team members think if he chooses that scrawny kid before the last pick? might not be good for the team and its prospects, but would it be good for that kid? Would it be good for their collegiality? Would it be good for their relations as boys in the school? Um, a prudent boy would make a wise decision. He might, he might know what a just decision would be in this case, to choose that boy to be on his team or not to. He might be led to know how to be bold or brave and make a decision that he knows would be difficult because some of his friends would disagree with it. Or think about a middle schooler having to choose how to use a smartphone or a middle school parent having to choose whether or not he or she will give his child a smartphone. Knowing humanity, knowing how this device works, knowing what you have what you have observed of others, what would you do with a phone? How might it impact your study, your life, your family relationships? What would it mean to be courageous in light of choices about a smartphone? Or what would it mean to be just in terms of the money that needs to be spent? Or who gets it? And when there's a when there are brothers and sisters in the family, and when should it be used and how much should it be used? Those are questions of temperance. Well, only knowing reality well will help you to make good decisions in those kinds of cases. So truth, knowing the truth is to know what is real and to see that we are under an obligation once we know what is real to be just, brave, and temperate in that reality. So, Pieper in his book says that prudence is a kind of ways and means that leads to good ethical actions. He says that in the midst of um, perceiving reality, we are to deliberate, judge, and then decide. And he says to be prudent is not just a matter of exercising one's will. And to be ethical, therefore, is not just a matter of exercising one's will. It's first a matter of knowing what is real, the cognition of reality that leads to the ability to make right decisions. He says that circumstances, and he's quoting Thomas here, there will be a variety of circumstances, an infinite amount of of circumstances for people and their context. So what will be the right decision in, in, in these various kinds of circumstances? Prudence is what will help us to know. And prudence um, comes not only from our own contemplation of the real, according to Thomas, but it comes from our study of history. Because one way to accelerate our understanding of reality is to listen to what others have said in history and in literature and other kinds of writings. And that's why Pieper says, again following Thomas, that prudence requires docility, the willingness to take counsel from others, to hear. But first, it takes a kind of still contemplative disposition that is unbiased, that wants to have reality, as it were, written across one's mind and heart. So there's a contemplative aspect of being still before the the cosmos. There's this docility of receiving counsel. And there's also what he calls true memory. 
the the willingness to let one's honest recollection of the truths that have already been perceived in reality to be recalled and to inform, therefore, our decisions. He thinks that prudence informs all of the other virtues. It it puts its form of reality in them and on them so that we can realize the good in the reality that really is. I'd like to conclude just by reading a quotation right out of Peter's book. It's a summary of prudence. I think you'll find it edifying and helpful. Here's what he says prudence is. Prudence, then, is the mold and mother of all virtues, the circumspect and resolute shaping power of our minds, which transforms knowledge of reality into realization of the good. It holds within itself the humility of silent, that is to say, of unbiased perception, the trueness to being of memory, the art of receiving counsel, alert, composed, readiness for the unexpected. Prudence means the studied seriousness and, as it were, the filter of deliberation and at the same time the brave boldness to make final decision. Final decisions. It means purity, straightforwardness, candor, and simplicity of character. It means standing superior to the utilitarian complexities of mere tactics. Well, I hope that's uh, somewhat edifying and possibly inspiring to you. Prudence is a governing and great virtue that helps us to know what is real and then to know how to realize the good. Well, thanks for watching or reading. This has been another episode of The Christopher Perrin Show on truenorth.fm. I'll be back next time with another episode on false prudence. I hope you'll be with me then. I'd like to thank you for watching or listening to The Christopher Perrin Show. And to do that, I can give you a coupon code that will give you 10% off on anything that you might care to order at classicalacademicpress.com. And the coupon code is simply CPSHOW. Thanks again for listening or watching.